Well, good morning again. As we return uh, to our series in the book of Romans, I ask that you turn to chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 18 through chapter 11, verse 6. You'll find that on page 946, if you are utilizing a pew Bible, as Romans 10, chapter, chapter 10, verse 18 through 11, 6. This is God's holy and inerrant word, so let us give careful attention to it. Verse 18, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who do not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to bow. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that as we now sit at your feet to hear the preaching of your word, we pray that you would illumine our minds, open our hearts, and show us the things that you would have us to know, hear, and understand. Glorify our Lord through that which we hear even now and continue to mold and shape us into his image for your grace, mercies, and purposes. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. A few sermons ago, I started off by alluding to the movie Groundhog Day, which was initially released in 1993. It turned out to be a landmark, high-grossing blockbuster film, a landmark particularly because it broadly introduced or reintroduced the novel concept of time looping as a central feature in a movie. In time looping, the day and events of that day are repeated over and over again. The central character who's caught in this time loop wishes, hopes that he or she can escape that loop and return to normal time, but when he or she wakes back up, it's more of the same exact day, sometimes like a nightmare. And so now, as I mentioned, it starts off seeming like there's no hope of a return to normalcy. But as is common to each of the 40 or so films that popped up in this genre, 
each successive time that the main character goes back into the time loop, there is some clue, an event, or marking uh, point that the character starts to recognize as having an effect on the loop. The result in terms of how much further ahead they could get ultimately getting out of the loop depends, always depends on how they deal with the marker. And so as time goes on, or should I say as time's looped around, the main character wisely starts looking for that marker, that event, the adjustment they need to make when they come across a certain issue. One guy in, in Deja Vu, for instance, Denzel Washington wrote a letter to himself that he could find in a certain store in a certain vehicle. And thus by doing so, they then were able and finally to exit the time loop. Now you say, well, Dean, as I'm reading this, what in the world does it have to do with this text? Why are you talking about this particular genre? Well, because if you were with us when we started working through chapter 9 and 10 of this book, you might have felt like you were and still are thematically in a time loop. For you see, in chapter 9, Paul emotionally starts off by recognizing that it was his people that were adopted by God to be God's people. To them belong the glory we kept hearing, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. They were the ones who had claim to the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, Christ. But then it's like we were on a phone call and someone asked the question, but Paul, have you looked around? Not even half of us, that is the Jews, have been saved or trusting in Christ. Paul then, feeling compelled to respond, says, but it is not as God through the word has failed. It is not as if God through his word has failed. He then proceeded to introduce the doctrine of election, noting that not all who were descended from Israel belonged to Israel or God's covenant people. Then that dovetailed into a mentioning of the Gentiles, us, coming to faith. That's so via quoting Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not my beloved, I will call my beloved. That movement between those who were the recipients of the covenant blessings not coming to fate and those who were outside of that blessed relationship continues throughout the chapter until the very end where Paul highlighted the dynamic that the Gentiles who were not pursuing God by works were receiving him by faith. That's so while God's covenant people who should have been doing the same exercising faith as their father Abraham did neglected to do that but instead chose to strive on their own in their own human will and nature to accomplish the merit through their observance of the law an impossible feat. Paul then still in his thematic loop starts off chapter 10, again emotionally communicating the failure of his people to come to God according to God's plan by faith and not by and through their own efforts, works. But now the marking point, the time loop off-ramp, if you will, that has been showing up throughout the text begins to show up even stronger than it had in the beginning. For now we hear 
if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The universal nature of the gospel is expressed as the off-ramp from having to repeatedly hear about the election of some and the reprobation of others and the nullification of one set of favored people to the reach of all kinds of people. And how? Verse 17 of chapter 10 tells us, by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That then brings us to our text. And it should not now therefore surprise us that we find Paul still dealing with the issue of answering the overarching question, still in a time loop. Why haven't your people, the majority of them, come to faith in Christ? We're still in the thematic time loop. Now remember, Paul has been in this thematic loop for some time now. So he's at the point where he can adeptly anticipate the things that are coming up, questions and all. And so with that expertise in hand, he puts forth three questions and then provides the answer to them, all with the goal in mind of once again providing the reader with the off-ramp out of their thematic time loop of self-reliance. Let's look at those three questions and the answer Paul gives. First is the question he asked in verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? That is, could it be that the reason the majority of my people have not come to save in faith in Christ is because they have not heard the good news of the gospel? Paul wastes no time in answering that question he anticipated hearing. He writes, indeed, they have, or yes, they've heard the gospel. Friends, here I want you to note that there's an underlying issue of fault-finding or blame-casting also going on here, particularly an underlying attempt to either find fault with or lame blame on God. And it's not by Paul, but by his readers. If you remember in chapter 9 when Paul spoke of the election of some and not of others, articulated as God having mercy on whomever he will, the anticipated reply from the folks were, well then, why does he find fault with me? Who can resist his will? In other words, is it not the case that it's not our fault? It's his. Here in verse 18, the underlying assertion contained in, in the question we see there is, is it not the case that the folks have not heard the gospel and therefore are not at fault for not responding to it. Here, Paul does not deal with that underlying fallen propensity to lay blame as Adam did in the garden. Instead, he immediately proceeds to refute the assumption that the reason folks had not come to saving faith was because they had not heard the message of salvation. 
He goes about doing this by quoting verse 4 of Psalm 19, which says, Their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Now, it's interesting to note that in these chapters, Paul has been talking about, speaking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what saves. But here he quotes the first part of Psalm 19, which speaks not of special or specific revelation, but general revelation. You remind, you reminded, be reminded that Psalm 19 starts off, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky speaks or shows his handiwork. Night after night pours forth speech. So general revelation is what Paul is saying here. Similarly, in Romans 1, Paul asserts that there is no excuse for not turning to God because the things that are in display in creation clearly demonstrate that there is a God. But people, he wrote, suppress that knowledge in unrighteousness. They want to do their own thing. Now, there are various reasons that are put forth as to why Paul did not utilize Psalm 19, which now talks about the law of the Lord being perfect. That is God's revelation, his revealed word, scripture, that which will draw folks as they come to know God and what is required of God. So the best explanation, considering why he didn't use that, but he used the context he did, again, considering the context and the question, we find the best summarized, or I find the best summary of it by Jim Boyce, who wrote this. Paul sees a connection between the first and second parts of Psalm 19, between the general revelation and the specific revelation, and that he does so rightly. In other words, he understands that the two forms of revelation are complementary, are complementary and that what is said of one can generally be said of the other. So then the bottom line that Paul is making is that the gospel went out far and wide in the world in which he lived and was receipt in receipt by every representative kinds of people, including his own, the Jews. And thus the issue could not be that they did not hear or they had not heard the gospel. He then moves on to answering the second question found in verse 19. But I ask, did Israel not understand? In other words, so yes, they've heard it. Yes, they've heard the gospel. But isn't it the case that they didn't understand what they heard? Paul immediately answers that anticipated question by quoting from Moses, both Moses in verse 19 and Isaiah in verse 20, from Deuteronomy 32 and Isaiah 65, 1 and 2, respectively. They read, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And Isaiah, I have been found by those who do not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Now remember, the point Paul is trying to make here is to assert that they did, in fact, understand. It wasn't that they did not understand the gospel, and that's why they weren't coming. They did understand. And how did Paul know that? Because you don't become jealous of what someone else has unless you have some idea of what it is they have. You don't covet. You don't break the Ten Commandments. You don't covet someone else's blessing unless you know and believe in your heart that it is a blessing. 
And to this end, listen to how Pastor Dan Doriani weighs in on this. He writes, We know that the Israelites understood because they envied the Gentiles whom they scorned as a foolish nation. Yet Gentiles found God. If the people of Israel envied the Gentiles, they must have seen that Gentiles became God's people. If the Israelites are angry, Paul reasons, they must understand, and that makes them accountable. He goes on to say, pastorally speaking, when biblical teaching makes a listener angry, it often indicates that the person understands a message and dislikes it. I was praying this wasn't happening to me in Sunday school this morning. That may not be the end of the matter, he goes on, since that person is at least weighing the teaching and that makes him or her accountable. Friends, there are folks who enter the doors of churches all across America. Every Sunday, they sit down and they hear the gospel preached over and over and over again. Their own personal time loop of self-reliance, if you will, but they never come to save in faith. Instead, they are like Paul says of these in our passage, quoting Isaiah, all day long, I, that is God, have laid out my hands to them. Week after week after week, they're hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they refuse to submit themselves to the God who created them. Instead, they readily and speedily hold fast to their own way. I imagine many of us, if you're not in here, you know folks who are like that. And so the question becomes, is there any hope for your friend who is like that? Is there any hope for the Jews? And that is the third question Paul anticipated as coming from his people. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. It reads, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Paul, what are you saying here? Are you telling me that the Jews are not going to come to faith? Are you telling me that the people whom God chose when they were not a people will no longer be his people even after he promised them they would be his forevermore? Paul, if that promise goes by the wayside, then how can I have any assurance in any of the things that were promised to me, a Gentile, seeing as how you have failed them I believe if Paul were around today, he would answer those questions and concerns something like this. Dean, I believe, and I would say yes, you say, I believe in order for us to fully grasp this situation, we first have to go back to what I wrote in chapter 9, verse 6. There I wrote, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That, my friends, translates to not all who are physically born Jewish are automatically spiritually renewed and thus a member of God's kingdom, just like not all who are born in or to a Christian family are not automatically on their way to heaven. Jesus himself told Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He then told a bunch of Jewish leaders, 
men who would have called themselves a part of Israel. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Judas Iscariot walked with Jesus for three years and would have called himself a part of Israel, yet he's referred to in scripture as the son of perdition, destruction, hell. And friends, this goes as far back in scripture as the eyes can see. Korah's rebellion in the wilderness and all those who were condemned as a result. The ten spies and their egregious lack of faith were plagued with disease until they died throughout redemptive history in the life of God's visible people in terms of a covenantal relationship. One thing was clear. Not everyone who was in that relationship spiritually belonged to Israel. Not everyone that will be represented in Revelation 7-9 where it says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Brothers and sisters, we're going to have palm branches in our hands. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So now, having heard what I just did, I want you to again look at our text and see that Paul, in answering the question, has God rejected his people answers with an emphatic, by no means. And then he points out what has always been the case in every example I used. He himself was an Israelite. Moses was an Israelite. Joshua, David, all the Old Testament prophets, the apostles, every one of them were ethnic Jews. Jesus Christ himself was an ethnic Jew. And so what was the difference between them and those who were lost throughout history? Verse 2, they were the ones that God foreknew. That is, those were the ones whose name was sovereignly by grace written in the book of life even before the foundation of the world. Paul makes this point by bringing to mind the account of Elijah's appeal to God. Found in verse 3, it reads, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. Folks, wake up. Don't miss this. If you've been sleeping, wake up. We're about to once again see and hear about the off-ramp out of their time loop. For you see, God's sovereignty and salvation and the reiteration of his decree as it pertains to numbers is communicated right here for us. First, Paul reminds us of what God told Elijah. Verse 4, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knees to bow. Brothers and sisters, they didn't keep themselves. God did. They persevered because God was doing the persevering. In every case, they were saved by God. They were saved because God saved them, not because of anything they did. 
Not because of how smart they were or anything like that, but it was God. His favor. Grace means unmerited favor. And if you don't believe that, look at Paul's follow-up statement, our time loop exit in full view. Verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Brothers and sisters, salvation is of the Lord for both Jew and Gentile and all who believe. It is his unmerited favor. It has and always been that way. And Paul wants us to understand that if it is by grace, it cannot at the same time be by works. Well, as he plainly says, then it could no longer be grace. You know, if you go back, and, I, and I'll ask you to do that, go back and look at God's promise to Abraham in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis. There he promised him a great nation, and he delivered. And he promised that all the families of the world would be blessed through Abraham, and he delivered. You know what he did not promise? He did not promise that every single person in that nation was going to be saved. And if he did, he has to apologize to all the people in the Old Testament that were a part of that nation that died and will not be in heaven. Brothers and sisters, as it has been, it will always be that God saves sinners as all of us are sinners. And there is no entire people that will be saved. But who will be saved is all who are called Israel. And the reason they are called Israel is because they belong to God, the new Israel. That is something that's offensive to many. But I wholeheartedly believe with all my heart that that is what scripture teaches and that again, throughout history, that is what God has been doing. God has been building his church, his people, those who will be speaking, shouting, exclaiming in Revelation 7, at the end of time, worshiping our Lord together from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, we will be those who are called Israel. And thus when you get to chapter 11, verse 26, we'll hear these words, all Israel will be saved. And it will be so because every single one whom God has ordained to be saved before the foundation of the world, Jew, Gentile, any ethnicity, background, high socioeconomic, low socioeconomic, they will be saved because they would have been chosen by grace. Are you one of those who will be chosen by grace? Are you in a thematic time loop where you're continually relying upon your own effort? You say in some cases, yeah, I believe Jesus, but there's a back part of you says, you know, but I, I think that my work will mean something here. Or is that you? Are you caught in that thematic time loop? If you are, brothers and sisters, I am telling you that God's word clearly says that those who are chosen are chosen by grace. 
And today, if you hear his word, harden not your heart, but may his mercy cause you to be among that number. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these timeless truths that you have spoken to us. I pray, Lord, that you would grab hold of anyone that's here right now who does not call the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and mention him as being dear Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would cause them to recognize the truth that is you and you alone who are the only way, the truth, and the path, the light to salvation. Would you grab hold of their hearts even now and cause them to be yours, cause them to profess our Lord, and then open all our eyes, Lord God, to the goodness of your mercies that are renewed each and every day, the goodness of your grace that has bought us and has caught us and is now teaching us to walk in good obedience to you. Guide us and keep us in and through the grace that you saved us with, in and through the gospel that you saved us with, and cause us not only to recognize that we've been saved by that gospel, but cause us to live by and through it also. We pray all these things to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.